Crappie hippie on board. All right, we're ready to go. Lure love, I can't get enough. Got a space in my tackle box, just got to fill it up. Lure love, I can't ever stop. Don't got a basement, got an underground tackle shop. I am Lucy, the Lorematic Computer. Welcome to the Lure Love Podcast with your hosts, John, Crappy Hippie King, and Tim, Tacklebox Beat. Thanks, Lucy. Guys, tournament anglers want to catch the largest fish, correct? Sure, if you catch the largest fish in a tournament, you get a big fish payout, and actually, you're probably going to win the whole thing. Yeah, most people like to catch big fish. Then it would make sense to learn which lures catch the largest fish, correct? Well, if we knew which lures would catch the largest fish, we'd always use those lures. This is what I expected. So I contacted the International Game Fish Association to analyze the data they collect. For brevity purposes, I will refer to the International Game Fish Association as the IGFA from now on. Oh man, the IGFA is a great organization. For our listeners who don't know about them, fill them in, Lucy. Gladly. The IGFA is a nonprofit organization committed to the conservation of game fish and the promotion of responsible, ethical angling practices through science, education, rulemaking, record keeping, and recognition of outstanding accomplishments in the field of angling. They were founded in 1939. The IGFA keeps records of the largest fish caught, right? Yes, that is what I meant when I said record keeping. The IGFA maintains the world records for all species of game fish. You can search all IGFA world records for freshwater and saltwater fishes. You can also download the application to submit a potential record, learn about scale certification, pre-test your fishing line, and more. Man, that's cool. Just how many records are there in the IGFA database? The IGFA database includes 19,660 total records. This includes current and retired records. A retired record means that that record has been broken, but was a world record at one time. There are 6,714 current records and 12,946 retired records in their database. The fishing records include fresh and saltwater fish, including 1,649 species. From albacore to yellowtail. There are 37 types of bass, including largemouth, smallmouth, Guadalupe, striped, spotted, and white among others. 14,003 of the record fish were caught by men and 5,637 by women. That's 29% by women. Do any of the anglers hold more than one record? Many anglers hold more than one record. In fact, 208 people hold 10 or more records. The most records held is 433 by Martin Arostegui. His records include 85 different fish species from bluegill to barracuda to carp to tuna. Wow, those are some talented anglers. I mean, it must be amazing to hold just one record, but 433, that's an obsession. And 19,000 records? That's a lot of data. Not really. But then, I'm a supercomputer. I guess 19,660 records would seem like a lot to a human. But here's a secret. There's fishing lure information in those records, too. You mean they list the lures that all those record fish were caught on? That is correct, my baitcasting buddy. But because the angler supplies the lure or bait information, and because it isn't a critical part of the information needed for a world record, 
There are some data inconsistencies. For example, to set a fishing world record, the IGFA needs to know the line, but not the specific lure used to catch the fish. Okay, so what does this lure data look like? There are 6,190 different entries under bait or lure type. But some of these are really the same bait or lure, just written in a different way. For example, the following appear as separate entries. Minnow. Alive minnow. Shiner. Sucker minnow. Dead minnow. Are these similar enough to be one category, or should they be counted separately? What are your thoughts? Well, I don't know, Tim. I'm thinking, you know, like this minnow thing, they ought to just go in a category called whole bait fish. I mean, I do like when an angler gives a type of bait fish. I am a fish nerd and such, but you know, look at, I mean, I mean, a carp over a pound can be used to catch an alligator gar, a big flathead or something. And scientifically speaking, it's a minnow, right? Right. But one doesn't generally picture it when the term minnow is used, unless of course you're a big fish hunter big bait user so a person's gonna think wow that 100 plus pound fish that was caught on a tiny middle so you know specifying kind of helps make the picture more clear i think the difference john is when you enter the data you have to pick the specific species of fish obviously but if you have just a fill in the blank so it's you're not doing using a pull down menu or anything you just doing what you just said. You're thinking back, well, what was it? Well, I bought a bunch of minnows at the bait shop. So I type in minnow and then every person's a little different. You can tell the people that are really specific and they're getting down into the nitty gritty of, of what that lure was. And maybe there's some others that they don't just don't want to go in it. Or like you said, they don't want to reveal what that secret lure was. Don't ask me what I was fishing with three weeks ago. Cause I may not be able to tell you. <laughs> So, Lucy, I assume there were data inconsistencies with the artificial lures too, right? Yes. There were 2,877 different lure entries. Some anglers provided more detail than others regarding the lure they used to catch a record fish. Some entries just use the word, lure, without any identification of what the lure was. Others provide some detail, such as the word jig, without sharing the type, brand, size, or color. And then there is my hero, Bethany Gasho. I wish all anglers were like Bethany. Okay, so who is Bethany? Bethany holds the record for largest white rock bass, a hybrid species produced by a female striped bass and a male white bass. When Bethany submitted her data, she included that the fish was caught on a St. Croix AXS70MHF rod, paired with a Daiwa BG3000 reel and Power Pro Spectra fiber braided line. That's excellent detail, all right. But this is the most important part. Bethany shared that the record white rock bass was caught using a 3 8 ounce, booyah, double Colorado blade, spinnerbait, in white chartreuse. Fantastic. So we know the precise lure she used to catch her record fish. Indeed. If every angler provided as detailed data as Bethany, it would have made my job easier. I had to make some judgment calls when analyzing the data, but there is still a lot to learn because of the huge size of the data set. Did it take you a long time to analyze all 19,000 records? Yes, a very long time. It took me 1.2 seconds. But I was binge-watching all of the movies from the 1980s at the same time. I loved Molly Ringwald in The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. And how about young Tom Cruise in Risky Business? And Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society? Fantastic movies. Tell us the results. Which lures caught the largest fish? I'm dying to know. Tim, it would be easy enough to tell you. But I'd prefer to have some fun, so let's get ready to play Lore Love Feud. 
It's like family feud, except John and you will be on the same team. You need to guess all the answers in a category before you get three strikes. If you hear this sound, your answer is on the board. But if you hear this sound, your guess was not one of the answers on the board. I did not include flies because they are their own separate category. Fly fishing is its own rabbit hole of data. Oh boy, all right. Tim and I together are an unstoppable lure knowledge machine. We can't be beat. We'll see about that. Let's get started and play the feud. I've put the top nine answers on the board. I pulled the IGFA database and asked, what are the top lure types that have caught world record fish? John, we will begin with you. Obviously, we need to start with my favorite lure of all time, the jig. Is jig on the board? Jig is the number one answer. 1,105 record fish were caught on jigs according to the database. Those included everything from small crappy jigs to large saltwater diamond jigs. Jigs caught five times more record fish than the second place lure category. All right, John, jigs rule. We are off to an excellent start. I think if I were Steve Harvey, we would have some innocuous banter at this point, Tim. But supercomputers don't do innocuous banter, so let's proceed. Tim, what are the top lure types that have caught world record fish? I'm going with the plastic worm, Lucy. The plastic worm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good answer, Tim. Good answer. Can we see plastic worm? Woohoo! We're two for two, baby. Yes, plastic worm or plastic grub was third out of the nine answers, with 195 record fish caught on it. Back to you, John. What are the top lower types that have caught world record fish? Okay, well, let's see. We got two pretty easy ones out of the way. <laughs> hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got, I got, I got, I got, I got it on our very first podcast episode. We talked about the invention of the spoon. So, Lucy, I'm going with the spoon. Good answer, John. Good answer. Let us see the spoon. Yes, spoon was second out of the nine answers with 211 record fish caught. You guys are killing it. Keep up the good work. Okay, now it's getting a little bit more difficult. We've answered jig, plastic worm, and spoon. Hmm. I don't think this one will be high in the list, but I'm going to go with the jerkbait. Tim says jerkbait. Can we see jerkbait? Yes, jerkbait is on the list. And you were correct that it was not high on the list. Jerkbait is at number nine, with only 13 record fish. You guys are four for four. John, what are the top lure types that have caught world record fish? Mm, okay, okay, okay. Hmm. I'm going to have to follow Tim's lead with jerkbait. Go with another bill bait. I'm going to answer crankbait. Crankbait, Lucy, let's go with crankbait. All right, crankbait has to be on the board. Lucy, is crankbait on the board? Let's see. Survey says? Yes. Crankbait is number eight out of nine, with 31 records. You have five correct and there are four answers still on the board. John, back to you. What are the top lower types that have caught world record fish? Okay, now let's see. Uh, what about spinnerbait? I know it's mainly for freshwater, but I'm going to go ahead and go with spinnerbait. Good answer. Good answer. John Crappy Hippie King says spinnerbait. Show me spinnerbait. Spinnerbait is number seven out of nine, with 57 record fish. 
Tim, there are only three answers left on the board. What are the top lower types that have caught world record fish? I've got to really think now. We've got all the easy ones. Hmm. I'm thinking about catching striped bass in Maine on topwater lures like a pencil popper. So I'm going to go with a popper. Tim, tackle box beat wants a popper. Show me popper. Yes, John, we are great at this. We are easily going to win. Popper is number six out of nine with 67 record fish. John, what's your guess for the next one? Well, man, let's see. What have we left out? I mean, we've guessed jig, we've guessed spoon, plastic worm, popper, spinnerbait, crankbait, and jerkbait. So let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh, I got to remember. I, uh-oh, here it comes, here it comes. Remember when we had Marshall Arnwine on the podcast? Yes, I know his number one lure type. Great guess, John. I'm guessing swim bait. He guesses swim bait. Show me swim bait. John, you nailed it. All right, let's go. Swim bait is number five out of nine. There is only one answer left, and you don't have any strikes yet. Boy, I am a little bit stumped now. What have we left out? Lucy, I know you said fly fishing was a separate category, but I'm going to guess a fly anyway, because you can use a popping cork to cast a fly in a spinning rod. So I'm guessing fly. Good answer. Good answer. Can we see a fly? Okay. Bad answer. Bad answer. I'm afraid fly is not on the board. That's one strike. Back to you, John. Okay. 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 Let's see now. We guessed spinnerbait and it was on the board and we guessed popper. Let's combine the two, a topwater spinnerbait and go with buzzbait. Good answer. Good answer. The crappy hippie says buzzbait. Can we see buzzbait? Horrible answer. Horrible answer. While a buzzbait is credited with catching two record fish, it was not enough to make the top answers on the board. That's your second strike. You only have one strike remaining. It is up to you, Tim. You win or lose on your next guess. What will it be, Tim? John, what are we missing? You know, buddy, I'm not sure. I mean, it seems like all our guesses are in line with the category. I just, I don't know. In line? In line, John, that's it. We miss one of the most common lure types, the spinner. When you said in line, it made me think of it. I'm guessing spinner. Mr. Tacklebox says the spinner. Let us see spinner. You win the round. Spinner is number four out of nine with 110 fish records. You've correctly guessed all nine lower types. We rock. We are the champions. We are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losing because we are the champions of the lures. One lure I didn't include because the data was not precise enough was the term plug. For example, some fish records had the term minnow plug for the lure type. That was not clear enough to determine if the minnow plug was a crankbait, jerkbait, topwater, or other type, so I did not include that data in the game. Well, Lucy, what did we win? A Cabela's gift card? Hey, a new bass boat? An all-expense-paid trip to Alaska to fish for salmon? Come on, girl, what did we win? John, that was only round number one. But before we move on to the next round, are you curious about which lore brands hold the most world records? Well, obviously, what are they? 
Remember that I was only able to analyze the lure brand when the angler included it with their entry. Many anglers did not include the lure brand, which makes me sad. So very sad. Well, Lucy, what did you find? Which lure brands were mentioned most often in the database? The top brand by far, with 489 record fish, was Rapala. <laughs> well, no surprise there. First of all, Rapala has been around for a very, very long time. And second, their performance is second to none. They catch fish after fish. And third, they are still the number one lure company in the world. Next was MEPS with 99 records, followed by Yozuri with 90 records. Those are huge brands, too. Next was Halco with 60 records. Halco? I don't know of them. They are an Australian lure company. Very cool baits. I'll drop a link in the show notes to their website, along with all the other brands I've mentioned. Man, this is cool. Who's next? Storm with 60 records. Bomber with 50. Mr. Twister with 43. Rebel with 38 records and Berkeley with 32. But I left out one lower brand that is number six overall with 59 record fish. Can you guess what it is? Uh, Panther Martin? No, but they have 17 world records. Z-Man? No, but they have six world records. Roadrunner? No, but they have 13 world records. Eppinger's Daredevil? No, but they have 24 world records. All right, all right, all right. We give up. Which lure brand is number six with 59 records? Homemade lures. No way. There are 59 records with homemade lures? Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, can you imagine how great it must be to catch a record fish on a lure you made yourself? Woohoo, man. That's got to be a thrill of a lifetime of a hundred lifetimes. That is awesome, Lucy. Lucy, what types of record fish were caught on homemade lures? Calico bass, bonito, black drum, jack creval, peacock bass, pollock, sauger, golden trout, brown trout, lake trout, black crappie, chain pickerel. The list goes on and on. John, have you ever caught a fish on a homemade lure? I mean, I know you do your professional lures, but on something like as a kid that was not a professional lure, which is kind of this clunky, handmade, poorly painted job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like in the when I, uh, uh, I had this, that dream where I got transported back to my kid self. I think I went over how I used to make, take a split shot and a pair of pliers and bend a nice crappie hook, make my own 90 degree jig hook, make the head out of a piece of split shot, grab some, just some polyester thread, throw out through those forever. I mean, caught crappie, caught bass, caught, you know, perch. And I'm not going to tell you, you know, a uh, perch in Kansas being basically any small fish, usually sunfish, but, uh, it, there really is something special about getting it on your own bug. I used to have a book that was about making fishing lures with just standard household objects, things you would find around. So I think at some point we have to do a challenge. You know how everybody has that junk drawer in the kitchen, just full of crap. Absolutely. (laughs) Each go to our drawer, pull it open, and we have to use one item, throw some hooks on it, and then go out and catch a fish on it. That has to be a challenge for this summer. Well, we'll do it because, you know, but I might, you know, I don't know. I've cut lures out of beer cans. I've used a pop bottle cap. Uh, you know, there's a few things, uh, about innovating. You just kind of look, but then again, you know, just cause you ain't done it doesn't mean, you know, a person that's only handled 10 million lures like you isn't going to see a lot of designs right there. The minute they open the drawer, you know, sounds fun. I'm on, I'm in it. I'm with you. We'll do it. Are you ready for our final round of lure love feud? Yes, yes, yes. Fire up that board so we can crush it again. Okay. 
Let's reset the board for our next category. I've put the top 10 answers on the board. I pulled the IGFA database and asked, what are the top non-artificial baits that have caught record fish and that one of you has eaten? Lucy, we don't eat bait. Wait a minute, wait a minute. By non-artificial, you mean food items like an apple or cheese? Yes. While neither of those are on the board, those would be considered non-artificial baits. I assure you that you have eaten all of the answers on the board. And they have also caught record fish. Tim, we will begin with you. Hmm, let me think for a minute. Well, how about shrimp? I love to eat shrimp, and I know I've used them as bait. They're kind of a common bait, so I'll guess shrimp. Tim says shrimp. Survey says? Shrimp is number three out of ten. Lucy, this is going to be way too easy. Yep, way too easy. My answer is worm. John, these are the top non-artificial baits that have caught record fish and that you have eaten. I know. I've eaten a worm. Well, I, uh, I didn't include worm on the board because I did not think you had ever eaten one. Oh, heck yes. Once when I was a baby boy, I was sitting with my mama while she was gardening and snapped up a worm just like a robin. That's one of our favorite family stories. And then when I was in seventh grade, three of us went on a survival mission with only a canteen, two dozen worms for bait, and a box of cornflakes. Oh, my goodness. By the second day, we had ketosis so bad, we ate all the worms and part of Andy's boot. Those worms were none too fresh for being hauled around in a backpack, let me tell you. Uh, see, as to my last worm ingestion, it was in college, and the worm was at the bottom of a bottle of tequila. But I did eat it. Well, actually, I ate it twice because it sort of rebounded, but then went down for good. So my answer remains worm. Well, it is not on the board, but it would have been if I had thought you had eaten one. 250 record fish were caught using a type of non-artificial worm, including earthworms, sandworms, and mealworms. So I guess I'll have to give it to you, even though it's not on the board. Lucy, I guess your research wasn't as thorough as it should have been. I guess not. Tim, it is your turn. What are the top non-artificial baits that have caught record fish and that you have eaten? I'm going to say a crab. A blue crab? No, a hermit crab. Wait, you ate a hermit crab? People don't eat hermit crabs, although 19 record fish were caught with hermit crabs. Why did you eat a hermit crab and how was it cooked? It wasn't cooked. I was a teenager at the beach and somebody dared me to eat a hermit crab. So I pulled that bugger out of its shell and popped it into my mouth. I do not even have a physical body, yet that makes me want to gag. So it's a correct answer? Yes, I guess it is. I was going for blue crabs, which humans often eat, and which caught 33 record fish. I did my research but this game is going horribly wrong. John, please do not tell me that someone dared you to eat a maggot. Nope, I have never eaten a maggot. But I did see a cooking show on TV where they made some maggot dishes. Uh, the chef said that conventional meat maggots are very sour and creamy, having lots of fat, while giant beetle grubs are greasy and creamy, but are kind of like toasted coconut when cooked. Please stop talking about that and give me your next guess. I am beginning to regret playing this game. I once ate an anchovy and clam pizza. Is that your guess? No, all this talk of food just had me thinking about my favorite foods, but... You know, hey, why not? I'm going to use that as my guess. I guess anchovy and clam pizza. This is getting too weird for me. Survey says. 
Ugh. You got three correct answers. Anchovies have caught 49 record fish. Clams have caught 105 fish. And bread or dough, the crust of your pizza, have caught 160 fish. Unbelievable. Wow, I am a good guesser. There are five answers left on the board. I wish you told me we could do combo guesses like John's anchovy and clam pizza. I would have used that strategy too. I'm sure I don't want to hear your answer, but go ahead. I once had a combo platter at a local fish house in Florida. I think they called it the Moby Dick platter. You could pick four different items, and I chose the squid, tuna, herring, and sardines. Okay. Can we see the Moby Dick platter? This is uncanny. Squid has caught the most record fish with 575, followed by sardines with 443, herring with 316, and tuna with 185. Oh, and the combo came with corn on the cob. Corn has caught 56 record fish. You two have run the board. Plus you have iron stomachs. Well, Lucy, what'd we win? Your prize should be a lifetime supply of Pepto-Bismol. But I'm going to give you each a gift certificate for the all-you-can-stand clam baked dinner at Big Lou's Bait and Tackle Emporium. You know his motto, if we don't sell it as bait, we'll serve it to you for dinner. Tim! To the lure mobile. We've got to get to Big Lou's ASAP. I'm right behind you, buddy. And thanks, Lucy. Those two are a piece of work. A lure-loving, anchovy-eating, shrimp-sucking, clam-chomping piece of work. And if you are interested, I will drop a link to all the statistics I compiled from the International Game Fish Association database in the show notes. Welcome, 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 lasses and lads. Welcome to KLUR, Lure History Radio, where we flash, wobble, and roll. And we tell wonderful stories, too. I am McEwen O'Gregor, leprechaun and storyteller over 200 years old. And have I got a tale for you. So gather round, gather round, all of you. Come close and listen to the tale of Poor Paul Bait Company. And the lucky lure. Hello, this is Tim Beat, your host on K Lure Lure History Radio. K Lure, where we flash, wobble, and roll. Tonight's story is that of the lucky lure. The story of this fabled lure line begins in the town of Paw Paw, Michigan, at the turn of the century when bass fishing was winning many avid fans across the country. In 1906, Papa Michigan residents Horace Ball and Charles Varney formed a club of bass anglers that would fish the local lakes and streams in the evenings after work. They called themselves the Moonlight Bass Club. I tell you, by 1908, Horace was cranking out lures as fast as he could for his buddies in the club, as well as for an ever-widening circle of fans. It wasn't long before his hobby became a business, and the Moonlight Lure Company was created. But the Moonlight Lure Company did not make our lucky lures. What they did produce some of the most advanced lure finishes possible. Horace Ball was fascinated with how light, especially moonlight or starlight, could be captured by a lure's finish. We will follow up in another episode about this very important early lure company. 
Besides attracting fish, moonlight lures also attracted the attention of Clyde Sinclair and Floyd Phelps. The details about these two gentlemen are not many, but it appears that they too were fisher businessmen in Pawpaw. They worked with the Moonlight Lure Company starting in 1924 and by 1927 had bought the company entirely. It was at that time the Pawpaw Lure Company came into being. Okay, I see the connection now. Pawpaw is tough to research and their exact beginning seems rather shadowy. However, the connection to Moonlight explains why Papa was also a real innovator in lure paints, techniques, and patterns. Their water frogs are highly collectible, and the spatter pattern they created is now the basis for the contrasting crackles, sunbursts, and veins we see in all sorts of rad-looking baits today. Rad, splat, retro return! Go around, come around, the design remains groovy! That roaring 25! Stays timeless. Uh, okay. John, I will buy you a bongo drum for Christmas. It would sound better than slapping the top of your tying table. So Clyde and Floyd got in on a lot of great intellectual property, as well as acquiring a shop that was putting out what are now some of the most collectible lures out there. The result was a big expansion of the Paw Paw line. They nearly quintupled their offerings within the next few years. The Hungry Bass, the Musky Pike, the Sucker, the Platypus, the Croaker, the Crazy Mike, and my favorite, the Jointed Dreadnought, were just a small sampling of the many designs this company put out between the mid-20s and 1970. The history of this company is fascinating. They were a major player in the development of hard baits for bass, pike, and other predator fish. But they also sold trout flies, ice fishing gear, and duck decoys, all of which are in huge demand by collectors. Keep in mind that we are talking about lathe-turned wooden lures and crafted decoys. The true heyday of the company was between 1930 and 1960. This is the era of prime collectability for their lures. Paul Paul was eventually purchased by Shakespeare just down the road in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 1970, and the brand continued to be marketed in Montgomery Ward and Sears under the name Meadowbrook Lures. Pawpaw used a variety of marketing approaches over the years, as well as different slogans and branding tweaks. I mean, we could do several segments on this company, and we should, because sadly, not a lot of young folks have ever even heard of Pawpaw. I mean, I'd heard of them, but it was a real pleasure to do this research and find out more about them. For the sake of our Lures and Luck edition of the Lure Love podcast, we are looking at the period from 1938 to 1951 as the most relevant. Yes, indeed. That is the epic of the lucky lure. Heck yes. That's when Pawpaw started using the slogan, I go for lucky lures and begin putting bugs in those navy on turquoise blue boxes or the green on red boxes. These boxes have a super fun graphic of a leaping largemouth with the slogan rendered in a blocky font that's bigger than the company name. I go for lucky lures, the best baits in any tackle box. The boxes these bugs came in are such a color blast and the lure is so tremendous. It's no wonder collectors cannot get enough. Oh, yeah, you have to be lucky indeed to come across one of these beauties. And I am always on the lookout for them. Prices range from $2 to $5 for a simple pawpaw topwater in fair condition without a box, ranging all the way up to this, a pawpaw platypus splatter paint in mint condition in a box on eBay for $400. Oh, yeah, there's quite a range because this company had such a long and illustrious history with dozens and dozens and dozens of lure models. Some like the platypus had more limited runs and so therefore worth more. 
Others were produced in the tens of thousands and so are easier to find and buy. But from what I can tell from my quick research is that all of these pre-1970 lures are lathe-turned wooden lures hand-painted in the old-school tradition. My favorites are the old wounded minnow and the young wounded minnow. The wounded minnow was a type lure of its time similar to Creek Chubb's injured minnow or Hedden's SOS. These are side-swim surface lures with propellers at each end. The paint jobs on these are true works of art. The perch pattern and the silver scale with red head are suitable for framing. No wonder that even people who do not fish can become fascinated with fishing lures, especially those from the past. Oh, I'm with you there, Lucy. They had some wonderful prop baits. The finishes on many of these are almost space age. I mean, let me tell you my favorites. I love the Shiner and Lil Shiner made from the 40s into the 60s. These are hand-painted gems with brushed-on details that are true works of functional art. I mean, the large painted eye and gilt-slit features are absolutely amazing. Those are amazing. We both like prop baits. Yours is a torpedo style, and mine are lay-down or side swimmers. Yours have painted eyes, but mine have the tack eyes that were generally used in paw-paw lures, and it's a feature that helps to identify them. Oh yeah, I'm telling you, it must have been a thrill to throw. Hey guys, don't I get a chance? Sorry, Tim. You know how prop baits warm my circuitry. Oh, it's okay. I am going to take over here, though. I want to talk more about the Lucky Lure promotional era of Papa Lures. Sure, I have my favorites besides the Lucky Lures. Papa made some incredibly unique baits. I think the Bonehead series is one of the coolest things in all of lure history. These were carved to look like they were made from antlers. They had diamond or ruby rhinestone eyes and came in a printed wood grain box. All the finishes were earthy browns, oranges, and greens. They had a total anti-glam hand-carved-at-the-table type look. Another is the croaker, a frog-shaped wooden block covered in real frog skin. Real frog skin! Oh my goodness, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Oh, I saw that one. It's pretty crazy. I mean, you know, taxidermy skills just to make a fishing bug? That's far out. Like we said, we have to come back to this company and dig into some of the way out designs Pawpaw marketed. However, today, Lucky Lures are the matter at hand. The first Pawpaw boxes were red, yellow, and of course, orange. They're a wonderful example of advertising art. However, after over 10 years in business, it seemed it was time for a change. By 1938, the post-depression era was beginning, and the country was looking for better times ahead. Good luck was so abundant, it could be put in a box and taken to the fishing hole. The ring of little fish swimming around the edge of the old boxes was replaced with a leaping, open-mouthed big bass done in more modern realism. To me, this was symbolic, as the original company was centered on a bass fishing club. Or maybe they just love big bass. Like, you know, I love big bass, can't tell no lies. That green and black leave me hypnotized. I love me a big green sassy, eagle claw little nasty. Ain't none getting past me, cause I do the fasty casty. Settle down, guys. Hogs, 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 hogs. Please, enough already. John, go have a jello cup. There's some in the fridge. Oh boy. We're sorry, Tim. You know how it is. Crappy hippie's enthusiasm is infectious. Like the common cold. But we don't need no cure. No, you're right. We don't. Okay, so now where was I? Oh, yes. The Lucky Lure boxes and their leaping largy. Yes, Tim. Isn't it interesting? 
John, could you slurp that jello a little more quietly? The choice of a large mouth for the Lucky Lures mascot. When the Moonlight Bass Club was formed in 1906, smallmouth were the fish of choice for bass angling. But as the USA became more mobile due to automobiles, and reservoir construction was part of the economic recovery from the Great Depression, largemouth bass were rapidly becoming the number one sport fish, surpassing smallies and even trout. Right you are, Lucy. While I have mixed feelings about the sanctioned and unsanctioned spread of largemouth bass into fisheries across the United States, I will say it had a huge impact on the fishing business. For one, it opened up spinning and bait casting to a much wider audience. People could go and catch a largemouth at a local lake or park pond, or they could travel to the Ozarks or Lake Okeechobee, locations with an exotic or rarefied feel, and enjoy wonderful fishing. It wasn't just about trout and mountains anymore. And wherever they went, they needed lures. Bass being a clever, adaptable fish with its own proclivities, folks needed all sorts of different bugs to catch them. And so the next great era of lure design began. And there at the forefront were Lucky Lures by Papa. And now they have passed into history. But not only does the memory remain, but so do some lures. But when one can put a box with a lure... That is lucky indeed. That's for sure. Like John, I'm also a fan of Papa's jointed dreadnought. And if you find a nice one in a crisp, new looking Lucky Lures box, you're looking at two or 300 bucks. Adding a Lucky Lure box in good to mint condition can push the value of a Papa 50% or more. It can even push the value of a non Papa lure. I saw a rather run of the mill river run go for almost 40 bucks because for some reason, the seller had it in a decent Lucky Lure box. Isn't that crazy? An antique box can certainly prop up your price. Yes, it can. Lucky Lure boxes alone can go for up to $50 if they are in new condition. Even a dingy box with tackle box wear, in fair condition, will fetch $10 to $20. And just so you know, both your favorites were marketed in the Lucky Lure line. It seems that the blue or red-green boxes were equally popular, but my research on that is by no means conclusive. The thing to remember is when you open that old tackle box from Grandpa's Attic or get into that fishing stuff you bought at a garage sale and you spy a pretty little blue or red lure box with a jumping bass on it and an I go for lucky lure slogan, know the shamrocks are raining down on you. It could be your lucky find of a lifetime. Uh, Tim, one last question. Sure, Pod Bro. They make pawpaw jello. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears, and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call, the fishing luck, zone. Lake scene. Summer. The present. Man on a boat named Lou Angler, age 40-ish. Occupation, plumber. Lou Angler, a fixture of the tackle shop. A nondescript, commonplace fisher whose life is a treadmill built out of sidewalks. In just a moment, Lou Angler will have to concern himself with a huge bass. 
because as of three o'clock this hot July afternoon, he'll be stalked by Lady Luck. Or will he? Lou pulls up to a dock, skips a cast under it, and catches a lunker bass. Luck? Perhaps. But Lou knew from his research with maps and his fish finder that the dock was sitting over good structure. And an expert angler, even one named Lou, quickly learns that a dock is a good feature in and of itself. Lou knew the weather and other conditions were conducive for fish to be feeding. He'd practiced his casting so the lure would go where he wanted most of the time. He picked a bait that was suited for both the fish he wanted to attract and the type of presentation he needed to make. His rod and reel setup was matched to the challenges of quickly getting a good fish away from the posts, cables, and other possible hang-up spots. Was the lunker bass skill, or was it Lady Luck? In a parallel universe, Lou Angler's doppelganger, Hugh Angler, is also on a lake. With an identical boat. On an identical hot July afternoon. In an identical dimension of imagination. Hugh Angler motors over to a dock because it's white. White is his favorite color. Hugh casts erratically, hitting the dock loudly with his bait. Miraculously, the treble hooks don't catch the wood of the dock and the lure bounces twice before dropping into the water. A lunker bass smashes the lure, but Hugh only realizes he has a strike once the fish has hooked itself. Hugh's four-and-a-half spin caster with 10-pound test is pushed to the limit. His plastic gears start to scream, then start to melt, then strip out entirely. But somehow, Lou gets the bass in by hand lining. Was the lunker bass skill, or was it? Lady Luck. Did you like my Rod Sterling impersonation? Excellent work, Lucy. I do not believe in luck. I only believe in calculating probability. A gust of wind that lifts a lure into a tree branch could just as easily deposit it in a prime spot on the water. Right as your giant yellow sulfur mayfly imitation begins a perfect drift into a slit, where four trout are rising a real mayfly flies up your nose. And those pesky body betrayals humans are prone to. A cruel lesson on gases, liquids and solids happens in the middle of a huge reservoir right as the stripers start surfacing. You soil yourself, drop your rod, and lose a 30-inch fish. Okay, 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 we get the picture, Lucy. I mean, oh, do we ever. I mean, I can almost smell the picture, okay? Let's just say that wind, whatever its origin, can cause real problems in angling. I could go on and on. It's okay, Lucy. I think we get the idea. And whose luck are we talking about? Remember bad luck for you is good luck for the fish. When the fish gets off the hook or is clever enough to not get hooked at all, it's the scales tipping the fish's way. The fish's good fortune balances our equation. What I think luck amounts to is how well we deal with the unexpected. There are ways to try to bring factors under your control. A person like Hugh may eventually learn to bring more of these factors into his grasp through experience, knowledge, practice, attaining the skill level of an advanced angler. But no matter how good you get for the Hughes of the world, just like the rest of us, there will always be those things that are beyond anyone's abilities. You know, Tim, it's really crazy, but it's actually kind of endearing when a fisher like Hugh threads their way through so many traps and pitfalls to finally triumph. But 
ultimately it is the satisfaction of watching a long shot come in or a underdog take the win. It's not going to happen often. So my advice, it's way better to fish all the time and explore tactics, practice skills, learn from more experienced fishers and listen to the best of fishing podcasts. And then of course, completely geek out on lures. What you are saying is that through the acquisition of skills and experience, one can reduce the impact of random negative elements and even almost eliminate certain deterring factors, thus increasing the probability of catching a lunker fish. Okay, Lucy. So one of the ways we deal with this is with lucky lures. These are lures we have confidence in. Another name for these bugs, Lucy, is our go-to lures. Every angler has them and has their own reasons for faith in them, for believing them to be lucky. You know, Tim, actually, uh, got a little story for you. Yeah. I had this angler tell me they were coming from the lake and they seen this pro angler go by and, you know, I don't keep track of that, but the name on the boat set them on fire. They were like, oh, goodness gracious, there goes so-and-so. And his buddy's like, holy cow, pack of lures just blew out of that guy's boat. So pulled over, buddy ran out, grabbed him, and they commenced to fighting over him because they're like, these have been touched by by the biggest pro on earth these are gotta be you know give me half of them and <laughs> so they instantly by the laying on of hands just by simply being touched by this mystical hero of bass fishing those became lucky lures so that's that's one mode of empowerment right there and you don't know were those lures out in the boat because that angler had caught so many or were they out because the angler was going to throw them in the trash can because they didn't catch anything all day you never know you never know, but isn't myth creation wonderful? It's so fantastic. The thing that I always wonder about, John, is I'll see a new lure. You get excited about it. This has a lot of potential. But how long is it when you fish that lure before that initial confidence wanes? How long does it take for you before you're fishing something new and you kind of start to give up mentally about it, even though you, maybe you're still fishing it? Boy, that's a that's a heck of a question. I mean, you know... Um, like testing, when I'm, we're testing for, for the folks we test for, um, I, I always try to give it a fair test under conditions where that lure is meant to be fished. You know, I'm just throwing it at random. So, you know, um, you know, so when I have the confidence in it, it's going to last a little longer because I'm fishing it in a condition where, you know, I think, you know, it's the ideal. Wow, it just kind of depends. Like if I'm on one of my favorite ponds and I'm used to getting a strike in the first 10 casts, it goes much more than 20 casts you know, sometimes more, I mean, I'm, I test lures for a living. So, you know, I'm used to throwing them to 200 times or a hundred times, you know, but I, uh, yeah, gosh, Tim, I'm, I'll, I'll say on average, probably 20, 25 casts. If I haven't got a ding or a lick or this or that, I'm probably going to do something else. That's interesting. So you're looking at the body of water and comparing what typically, if it takes you 10 casts, usually before you get a hit or you get that first fish and this takes 20. So your confidence starts to wane. I probably, I guess I do that same thing. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Now, if it's a go-to lure, like something that I've caught a lot of fish in in the past, there's kind of that deep built-in confidence about it. But one of the things I don't do often enough is sometimes you get a new lure on and you take those first 20 casts and there's no bite. And so you think, well, I should change to something else where what I'm trying to train myself to do now is say, I need to fish at 20 more casts with a different retrieve can I really slow it down? Can I really speed it up? Because oftentimes what I find is we fish a lure one way and the fish don't bite it. 
But then if you can slow something down, the speed, the retrieve, how you're popping it, sometimes that makes the difference. And so you switch to the next lure and you fish it in the same retrieve and you still don't get anything when the fish were just looking for a little bit different of a presentation. Absolutely true. That is absolutely true. And that's what makes, you know, you such a good tester and, and something I should pay attention to more when I test because, you know, I'm, I'm testing the lure in a situation where I already have confidence that it'll probably work. And then when it doesn't, you know, you've got to avoid saying it's all the lure's fault because probably you, because you need to try some different things. You need to give this lure, you know, a thorough test. For example, when I took the hit stick out, I was so much loving because it was so windy. I was so much loving the way it threw. I, I, I was enjoying that, but I, you know, I was able to straight retrieve it and I was able to um, let it rise and lift over brush piles. And yeah, I was trying, you know, different things. And when I switched to, to um, jerking it down and then once I got it next to cover, you know, just allowing that little, that slight rise that that bait will do to get over the top of these logs and wiggle it over to the other side. Once I changed up my retrieve, I started catching some fish. So you're absolutely right. You owe her a good test. And I think that's what'll keep us in with our favorites, with our deep down go-to lures, because by golly, you know, I will throw a brown bomber all day. If I think they're feeding on craws and I don't hear anybody else doing any better on anything else, that brown bomber is going to stay on my line. You know, that's just the way it is. Sometimes the right lure is the lure that you can get into the right place something you can cast into the wind so you can get to where the fish are or a lure where you're going to get to that appropriate depth. You know, sometimes we might be fishing a standard retrieve. We like to fish that jerk bait and we're fishing at three feet deep and the fish are at 10. So we either need to put on something that's going to go deeper and really think about where are those fish? Because the one thing we know is that if we don't get that lure near the fish, we are not catching any fish. You know, unless they can see it from a long way and chase it. But if we can put that lure right in front of where the fish are, or, you know, within a foot or so, we're going to catch a lot more fish. And the lure is a key component of that. Okay. Y'all know that John Gearock is one of my favorite writers and he talks about, you know, the frequency of the lure on the end of your line contributing mathematically to luck. He asked a guy once, well, what is your favorite lure? And he said, a Royal Wolf. He goes, I think I have it on my line probably 70% of the time. And he goes, well, what lure? you catch most of your fish on. He said, a Royal Wolf. I probably catch about 70% of my fish on a Royal Wolf. (laughs) It was his favorite lure. It was his lucky lure, uh, because that's the lure that is hitting the water most of the time for that angler. So it could come from all sorts of directions. It's pretty cool. Can I know Lucy's over there going, yeah, see, it's all math because you are correct. Everything is math. Math is what makes the world go around. And without math, you could not count all the lures you own. How sad would that be? Clearly having confidence is a big deal and not losing that confidence because once you've really lost confidence in not just a specific lure, but sometimes a lure type, for instance, you know, for years and years, I didn't really fish spinner baits very much. I, I would fish them now and then I didn't get many fish on them. And then one day I was fishing them in the test pond and I was just killing the fish with it. They were smacking it and the confidence level went up. And part of that was, how did I wait to let it fall? What am I letting it bounce off of retrieve speed and all of those things. But then once you get that confidence, so it's good to test different lure types that you haven't fished before. Sometimes when I go out, I'll just at the beginning, I'll see if it's a short, if I'm going to be out for a couple hours, I'll just say, I'm only fishing one lure. And I just commit to that. And it forces me to think about it differently and fish different ways and broaden my horizons a little bit. 
oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Because we know what can happen if we're really, you know, sold down the road by advertising and good marketing is what makes fishing lure buying fun. But on the other hand, you know, you take that shiny lure out and you know, you've watched all these big bass getting hauled in by all these people. You throw it out and you're not doing any good. You know, you start feeling betrayed. You start feeling let down. Your confidence is shattered. You grab another big shiny lure because, you know, you've been on tackle warehouse. You've been to Bass Pro, whatever the reason you're, we see that panic, right? Where you're grabbing one lure after another, one lure after another, not really giving any of them a decent chance. You just, you just can't get that confidence spark, you know, and maybe you're too young or you haven't had the experience or haven't angled long enough to have a good supply of go-tos because that's the time you shut the box and you put out your go-to and when you only do like the five lure challenge or a one lure challenge yeah you're going to fish that lure way better way more thoroughly learn more about it and so on and that's how a lot of times a lure can go from being an also ran into that coveted section of your box that is your go-to bait and then john what if you're on a boat or you're out in the you know the spillway and you're there with four buddies and as soon as somebody hooks into a fish, everybody's saying, well, what, what were you using? And does everybody switch over to that lure? And then that lure's dead or, you know, it, there's that temptation. Whoever caught the last fish, that must be the lure. And maybe it is, but we also know that if fish see the same lure, same type of lure over and over again, they become a little bit desensitized to it. So that's another temptation that might actually hurt your luck. Yeah, it, it could. It really could. Um, you know, a lot of times guys are a little more experienced will just yell out a color, you know, uh, you know, I got him on a chartreuse, I got him on a chartreuse, you know, I think chartreuse can work just, you know, so he might be throwing that chartreuse spinner bait. I'll grab a green hornet, you know, just a, a chartreuse and black jig because I, I want to get that, that, uh, color in there, but I'm going to, I'm going to change the presentation just a little bit, but yeah. Oh my gosh. Especially when we were kids, it's like, I got him on a map. Well, what size? Number two, you know, well, what kind of tail? The natural squirrel, you know, like, dang it, all I got is artificial fiber. You're out of luck. Like, let me use yours. No. John, I do that same thing with calling out the colors, but I call out chartreuse, chartreuse, but only when I'm using red and catching the fish on red. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Dirty tricks. It's all part of fishing, brother. All right, Lucy, take us on out of here with true Rod Serling style, please. There is an answer to the question of Lady Luck, but only you possess it. It is proof that no matter what the future brings, the angler's capacity to catch fish will remain unaltered. The angler's potential for tenacity and optimism continues, as always, to outfight, outpoint, and outlive any and all changes made by fish and the lake environment. For this we give three cheers, and a unanimous decision rendered from deep within. The Fishing Luck Zone. And that's it for another episode of the Lure Love Podcast. Smash that like, hit that follow, and write us a wonderful review if you would, please. And come on back here in a couple weeks. Until we come back and see you, remember our slogan, why buy one lure when you can buy 103? Lure Love, you've been on to tie to the end of my line Lure love Can't I make you see Why buy five lures and you can buy